Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings a human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. One of my favorite things to do in this podcast is to talk to people who do interesting things with data. Austin Basie is definitely one of those people. A data scientist trained in the world of particle physics. Austin is a senior data scientist at Huddle, a really cool company that provides video review and performance analysis tools for sports teams and athletes. In this episode, we're going to talk about, first of all, why physics is awesome, of course, how guided missile theory and passing a soccer ball are related, and much, much more. I think you're going to enjoy it. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to the Masters of Data podcast. And I have a real treat here today, somebody from one of my favorite companies, Huddle, and that's Austin Basie, who is a senior data scientist at Huddle. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what Huddle does in a minute. But welcome to the podcast, Austin. It's really good to have you here. Thanks. I really appreciate it. been looking forward to it all week. Oh, good. Been looking forward to having you on here. And, you know, it actually just occurred to me, isn't there a jazz artist or some Count Basie? Is that it's spelled differently, right? Yes, indeed. But I've listened to his music. No relation? <laughs> yeah, no relations as far as I'm aware, but I'd love to claim him. His music's fantastic. <laughs> well, it's good to have you here. Well, like we always do on this podcast, I like to, you know, humanize the people we bring on. We talk about bringing human to the data. And so what's your story? How did you get into data science? What's your origin story? Oh, man, I have a pretty unique one. I don't know how far we want to go back. I kind of grew up in the kind of panhandle of West Texas and through some luck and privilege and some really great role models, I ended up in a pretty good undergraduate program for physics. And I got to do a lot of kind of research early on as an undergrad, and I just fell in love with it. Yeah, I think the kind of intellectual freedom you get from really hard problems is just addicting, right? Because for not hard problems, there's usually a right way and a crank to turn. But when you have like a truly hard problem that nobody knows how to solve, there's just this kind of intellectual freedom that lets you be curious and creative. And yeah. I totally got addicted to that atmosphere. And so I graduated with an undergraduate degree in engineering physics, and then I went to graduate school at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign to study experimental particle physics. That sounds easy. Yeah, well, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was fun. I, just the size of the data sets we had to work with, I kind of naturally had to mm-hmm. develop, you know, kind of a programmatic data analysis skill set. And that was a lot of fun. I loved learning all of that. I was fortunate enough to actually, in the middle of that work, go to CERN in Geneva, wow. Switzerland. I lived there for about three years with my wife doing kind of the wrapping up the rest of my dissertation work there. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was fortunate enough to be there in 2012 when the Higgs was discovered. Technically, wow. I'm an author on the Higgs discovery paper, but <laughs> you know, these high energy physics collaborations, you know, everybody You and uh, 300 other people? Well, yeah, 4,000 <laughs> other people actually. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And that's just one experiment. So I was with the Atlas experiment. The CMS experiment had another 4,000. And then there's another, you know, 3,000 or so folks involved with the actual 
Large Hadron Collider, the machinery equipment to do that, that also deserve, you know, a ton of credit. So it was a really big kind of endeavor, and that was a lot of fun. I, interestingly enough, though, and, and hopefully this will be a relevant segue to my actual work, I knew pretty much early on when I got there that, you know, these are not my people. <laughs> like, I <laughs> love everybody that I got to work with at CERN. They're just extremely diverse, extremely intelligent folks but I kind of learned that they have this love of physics and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Physics is beautiful. There's so much to love with that. But it kind of contrasted to some extent with my motivations and my desires. Like I wasn't so much interested in the physics as I learned as much as I was interested in the fact that it was hard <laughs> and I could be creative. And unfortunately, to some extent, you know, particle physics is a fairly mature field. And so there's a lot of kind of quote unquote right ways to do things. And I'm not just a big fan of coloring inside the lines. So I was ready to get my PhD and then go find something else to go learn. That ultimately is what brought me to Huddle. And by the way, for those listening, I haven't heard of CERN. So I guess that's basically the premier particle research facility in the world right at this point, right? Yeah, yeah, currently. It's pretty amazing. Is it near Zurich? Am I remembering right? Or? Geneva. Geneva, okay. Yeah. Oh, we were too poor to actually live in Geneva. So we lived in <laughs> just over the border in France in a little small French town called Toiris. For whatever reason, wherever I go, my best memories are food. And I actually oh. told somebody this the other day and he tried it out. Like that little, uh, it's a little town on Lake Geneva. And I had a pizza with an egg dropped on it <laughs> when it was hot out of the oven. I was like, yeah. I'm in heaven. Uh <laughs> That's the one thing we miss. There's a lot of great things about Texas. I'm born and bred Texan. I love it. But man, I would kill for some Gruyere cheese more often. Than <laughs> I think it's like $8 a block here. It's insane. Oh, yeah. No, I understand what you're saying. Well, and the other thing that came to mind too, kind of relating back to some other discussions we had on the podcast, but for also for people to know, I interviewed um, Richard Moeller out of Berkeley. He's a physicist emeritus now at this point. He's been a professor of physics there for a long time, and he got into climate science and all these other things, but he started out in particle physics. And he, mm -hmm. he said that, that it's a really good start for understanding data and yeah, things you had to yeah. do. And I mean, he was, he'd been doing it for, I'm not sure he was like in the field for like 50 years or something like that. So he'd been around for a while, but physics is a great background for that. Mm. And like you and I were talking about before, I mean, I started out in physics in grad school and I think it's a great background, like you said, for solving hard problems, having to deal with data. And I know when I was a physics grad student, the vendors would hate us when we call in because we were the ones that tore their stuff apart and <laughs> right. messed with it. And we're like, well, when I took your uh, device apart and I looked at the way that you had connected, da -da -da -da, and like it didn't work. And I'm like, sir, you just broke the warranty. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I want to talk about your design of your device. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, far <laughs> be it for me to disagree, but I kind of come at it from the same angle. I think kind of a physics education is really fungible. <laughs> I think there's a lot of ways you can reapply it to other places. I mean, obviously, it is absolutely not a replacement for domain knowledge, right? And I don't want to suggest that it is, but I think the kind of first principles approach that you learn kind of in a canonical physics education, I think, is extremely transferable. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, back to the story at hand. So you left CERN, you put physics behind you and you uh, you ended up at Huddle right away? Yeah. So I was writing my dissertation. And I got to a point where a friend of mine is basically a world expert and he graduated a year before me and I sent him an email and said, hey, can you look over this paragraph and make sure I don't make, you know, an idiot of myself? 
anticipating people would actually read my dissertation. But he checked it out and sent me back some comments. And then he also said, oh, by the way, I got a job with this really great sports company. You know, you should send me your resume because we're hiring data scientists. I said, oh, okay, yeah, I'll send it. And at the time I was like, oh, you know, sports companies, I'm not sure if that's something I'd be interested in. I mean, I love sports. I grew up, I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan. You know, I'm in Texas. So, And this friend of mine was actually a really big Patriots fan. And so we would work at CERN together. And then my wife would cook really great food. And he brought the laptop with the really expensive NFL game pass. And we would watch videos together. And so <laughs> we were really close friends. And so I sent my resume and I went and interviewed. And boy, I fell in love with the company immediately. They're based out of Lincoln, Nebraska. And as a result, they kind of have that Midwestern extreme niceness and humility that was just kind of refreshing. I had started the job search into kind of data science before a little bit. And right. that was just the really unique thing about this company was just how just nice and humble and just how pleasant and comfortable the culture and work environment was. So I was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's see where this goes. That's great. And I'm a big fan of what you guys do. I've been familiar with the company for a few years now to be able to see you grow. And so tell for those people who don't know, I mean, what does Huddle actually do? What's your business? So Huddle started in 2006. And the general idea is Huddle's a tech company that handles the capture storage distribution and access of sport video. And so it started out kind of targeting the elite market where I define elite as like division one NCAA and then the professional leagues, the NFL, NBA. And it wasn't until a handful of years later that it was realized that the actual really profitable market is the competitive amateur market where there's just a ton of like high school teams that this solution is actually extremely beneficial for. So a lot of our customers are kind of high school athletes and high school coaches. We still have products in the elite space and we're actually growing in that elite space as well. But kind of our bread and butter at this point is the competitive amateur market. And so coaches will take video of practice of games, kind of in the olden days, you would meet with another coach in a kind of diner at some point midway between high schools to exchange film on common opponents. Now you just send an email with a link or you don't even have to do that. You can just share within the huddle application itself. So that really kind of solidified that presence in the market, just making video really easy to access store and distribute. Mm -hmm. Now, our kind of big overarching vision is to capture and bring value to every moment in sports. And so that's kind of where my role is baked into the mission of Huddle is to find ways to bring value to every moment in those sports. And so, you know, ostensibly we're a video company, but the reason that video is valuable is that it encodes competitively valuable information for the coaches that can extract it, right? So that's why they want us to store their data is because that data gives them an edge. And so what I would like to do is figure out ways that we can, to some extent, automate that process. So can we pull insights you know, out of that video to give you know, coaches and athletes you know, that competitively valuable information to help them improve to help them become more competitive, you know, up their game, basically. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And how specifically do coaches use the data? Because I mean, I know having 
you know, known a few people from Huddle for a while. I've kind of heard some of the stories, but you know, it's there's multiple different people using the video. Right. You have the athletes themselves who are trying to get recruited, and the coaches are using it to understand how to train their players. I mean, what are the kind of the places where the big use cases that you guys see for the actual video? So definitely those kind of personas, if you will, that you mentioned are crucial. And we do our best to serve them through various kind of features in our applications. The one I'm probably most involved with kind of in my current role is we're targeting the kind of elite level European football market, so soccer for Americans. And that's actually a really interesting scenario because right now, we have like two types of data, if you will, that the video generates. We have kind of event data. So that's like a clip of video when like a pass occurs. And so that would be an event. And then we have like tons and tons of these structured data, these structured events for video of kind of when things are happening. And that is actually really, really common. We have a kind of professional elite level targeted product called Sports Code that allows teams to kind of curate their own events mm. and import events from other kind of third party sources. And it's very kind of technical. And so we have these folks that spend a lot of time to become experts in, you know, knowing exactly what their coach, what their manager likes to see in their personal definitions for things. And they code the video up that way. On the other hand, we have this tracking data and the tracking data is like this 25 Hertz. So 25, you know, times a second, we have high accuracy position data for all the players. And you know, using physics, you can take derivatives and get the velocities and accelerations of that. And that tracking data actually is lagging in terms of its kind of uptake in the elite market compared mm. to the kind of event level data. The event level data is really kind of consistent with the more statistical approaches. We have a bunch of these discrete events that you can build statistical models around. And so that's something we saw. And so the tracking data was something that we thought we could actually look into a little bit closer kind of with our physics backgrounds. So again, I was working with this friend of mine at the time who was also a physicist. And so the coaches were using the event data, you know, fairly reasonably, but the only kind of users on the teams of the tracking data at the time were the sports scientists, the guys that, you know, manage recoveries. And so their job is to make sure that each player is at their like physical peak for every game. And right. so they look at how fast the players run, what their acceleration moments looked like so they can tailor recovery and tailor training the next week. And we thought, man, there's this huge opportunity for actually pulling tactical and strategic information out of that instead of, you know, only just this really important, you know, more physical data. And so that was kind of one of our goals was how do we prove to a coach or a manager, you know, somebody who's making tactical and strategic level decisions, you know, how do we provide insight to that level based on just this tracking data? Because, you know, we saw a lot of value in that. So we built a model that kind of leveraged that to identify when players are open. So when they make big runs mm -hmm. So the benefit of this analysis was kind of twofold. So one, it's kind of a building block analysis in that if you can identify when players get open or position themselves optimally, then you can kind of layer on top of that more high-level insight analysis. But in addition, that kind of meshed really well with one of our products, which was to 
identify these moments and add event tags. For that, a person has to watch it. But if you can teach a computer right to know when a player goes on a run and it's really open, then we can automatically tag those sorts of situations. So that ultimately led to a paper that we published at the Sloan MIT Sports Analytics Conference on kind of the physics based modeling of past probabilities. So that was a whole lot of fun work that we got to do with that. I was looking at that and that's, I mean, basically if I understood it right, you guys were able to predict, you know, how people would pass and the likelihood that there would be a pass and whether the pass was successful. Am I remembering right? Yep. Yep. So that was it. I helped William, my friend. So he did a lot of the kind of analysis and modeling to get that to work. We started out doing some kind of fun, just so it started out with a missile guidance algorithm. So, <laughs> of course, it did. yeah. So, so we realized that a player at any given point in time can only influence right a small portion of the field at any given time based on where he's right. positioned, right? And so the question is then, if he wants to influence some other part of the field, he has to get there, and he's got to take an optimal trajectory to get there in the least amount of time. And so we use this kind of missile. It's not a very fancy one, but it's the kind of constant bearing decreasing range algorithm. So we take the player's current position and velocity and we try and determine what's the minimum amount of time that he could get to anywhere else on the pitch. And we kind of repeat that analysis for every other player. And then based on that, that gives us an idea of who could ever be involved with any sort of pass based on the ball's position at each kind of time step. And so based on these kind of really fundamental first principle physical quantities, then we can start layering on top of that this model of how long does it take to control the ball? How long does it take to intercept the ball? And then based on that, you can start fitting that model against data that we had. Yeah, so a lot of fun to actually produce that. That's a super cool use case. And so, and I mean, even kind of stepping back to where you started, I mean, you kind of talked about then creating event data. And I think if I remember right from some of the conversations I've had before about what you guys do, a lot of that's because you got this massive amount of video. I mean, uh, these games are longer games. And if you're a coach or a player, whoever else, and you're trying to get to particular moments, you need the events to be able to navigate the video. I mean, is that the kind of end goal? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And Actually, the thing that I'm probably most passionate about when I started at Huddle, which is they have all of this unstructured data, like tons and tons of you know video. So right now, that becomes super valuable when coaches or experts go in and add that structured data to it, right? Those events, that metadata. And right now, a human does it at real time. So one minute of video, it takes them one minute to add this structure, you know, in the best case, right? A lot of times it right. takes a really long time where you need a lot of people to add all of the structure you need. And so the thing I'm really passionate about is can we find ways to take this unstructured data and automatically add structure to it with, you know, deep learning approaches or with, you know, advanced heuristics or I'm just really interested in that hierarchical adding layer upon layer of structure without having to involve a human because that allows us to scale a whole lot, obviously, but also it saves our users valuable time so they can spend time on more important things. For whatever reason, this kind of reminds me of a 
you know, I'm a musician and I always love to, because I'm a musician and a geek, <laughs> I love to try out new different software on audio and, and a lot of the advances that have been made about mapping out audio, detecting the notes, detecting the chord structure and all these kind of things. We're at a point now where, I mean, I have a free app on my iPhone that I can record something and it tells me what key it was in. It tells me what the chords were. And the point is, it's not always 100% correct, but it doesn't matter because it gives me enough where I can go in and adjust it. I can say, okay, well, it wasn't that, it was this, you know, it wasn't that chord I was playing, or it's not the right chord there. But it gives me enough where it literally, I mean, I can do things I couldn't even imagine, you know, 20 years ago when I was in college playing around with a band or something. So I'm thinking that it's the same thing here. You give these customers enough where they're annotating instead of, you know, creating from scratch. And now all these new opportunities arise that wouldn't have been imaginable before they had that, right? I mean, does that sound right to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was something that we kind of learned, right? Is that this kind of high-level analysis that we did, like this paper, you know, really needs really good data to come into it. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of really fantastic analysis we can do if the data is there. Yeah. And so the question is, you know, how do we get that data, <laughs> you know, in their hands or in our hands as well so we can actually participate in the process of pulling the insights out of that. Your kind of music example, I think, is really appropriate, right? Because there's a lot of additional higher levels of extraction of creativity that can happen when your primitives are different. And so right. we're very excited about hopefully, you know, creating some automatically generated primitives for people to use to explore and be creative with. Well, and I would assume too, you know, with the audio realm or the ASCII data realm or whatever you want to call it, like the, to a large degree, those of it seems like they're a lot further along just because of the nature of that data. But I would guess that with video, there's a lot more that needs to be done. I mean, yep. if, you're, if you need to go to missile trajectory <laughs> mapping to get your inspiration. So, I mean, what's the state of the market around this? I'm assuming it's not very far along. Well, it's fairly robust to some extent. We have a product out that already does optical player tracking quasi-monocular. So it's from one perspective of video. We actually have a couple of cameras that we stitch together effectively. But we're using deep learning pipelines to track players. And then we sell that tracking data back to our customers that have installed our cameras. And that's a pretty mature process right now, for the most mm. part. There's definitely a lot of room for improvement. So we do have uh, humans that are in the product loop there that kind of correct the output of our algorithms. And obviously one aspect of our work is to you know, decrease the amount of time that it takes to correct our data. So basically improve the accuracy there. Mm -hmm. So from the, you know, is it possible <laughs> definition of maturity? Yeah, I think that's mature. But I do think there's a ton of opportunities for improvement because, you know, object detection in video is kind of square one. Object tracking is kind of square two. So there's really a lot of room to grow into like event detection, identity tracking. So if I just see a bounding box, I know who this is. Or if I, you know, see a sequence of bounding boxes, I can tell that this is a shot or a pass or that person's jogging or it's an aerial duel or something like that. There's a lot of room, I think, to grow that still exists. There's a lot of information encoded in those pixels that we haven't been able to teach a computer to reliably extract. And so I think there's a really high ceiling yet for things to be done in this space. 
Exactly. I think that's what's cool about what you guys are doing. And, you know, and it reminds me, we were talking a little bit about this before, but I, I've seen this come up in a, a couple different ways. But I mean, effectively, part of what you guys are getting at is that in this day and age where so much data is being produced and, you know, particularly unstructured, like you're saying, this data is just raw, it's not processed. I've always said that the companies who wins are the ones who are able to extract value from that and actually, you know, figure out insights where they can provide more value to their customers. But I think it's even cooler with what um, what you guys are doing, in particular what you're talking about. You're almost in uh, two meta layers there. Like you're providing more value to your customers, these teams, but then those teams actually become more competitive because the more that they can extract from this data, then, I mean, basically what you're, some of the value proposition you're putting in front of them is like, look guys, you know, when you're at an elite level like that, the level of competitiveness I know is probably pretty close. So, you know, if you can use this data and start to, Kind of like what happened with baseball, right? You know, it's, right. what can you do to extract more value to make rational decisions about how to compete? Yeah, and that's really changing the NBA right now with the, you know, total disappearance of the mid-range shot, for instance. And I do think soccer, especially European soccer, is probably going to be the last domino to fall, I think, in that. <laughs> you know, just, I don't think that it's the last domino to fall because the insights are there. I think they're absolutely there. And there's some really great things and models and insight that can be developed with the data. I think there's some kind of cultural pushback. I think there's still this highly romantic perception of the kind of football manager where they're a maestro, they're an artist, they're not a CEO. And so I think there's some cultural barriers, I think, to that adoption. But I absolutely believe that, you know, these insights are real, right? And so they absolutely present a competitive advantage to those teams that use them. So, you know, as culturally, the hesitation, however strong that is, I think it's going to be hard to argue with the results that just come from being able to leverage the insight and the data that you can, you know, leverage yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, with most things in sports, there's the reality of what goes behind the scenes and there's the pageantry that you put on TV. Right, so you can right. maintain the latter without uh, advancing on the former, right? Well, to put a bow on this, I mean, what's um, some of the cool things you're thinking about going forward that you can actually share? I mean, what do you think are some of the things where you think there's some, you know, advances and some things going on that not everybody knows about that you're really excited about? Yeah, honestly, there. so the things that I'm really excited about aren't entirely novel. I mean, there's a enclave of Twitter handles that if you like follow all of them, you'll kind of see where all of this is heading, I guess. But I'm really interested in the two opposite ends of the spectrum of our data analysis in soccer in particular spectrum. So at one end, you kind of have all of this tracking data, you have everything and it comes to analyzing it. And just the fact that you have these coupled multi-agent systems of players interacting with one another, that's just like a fascinating system to analyze. And I think there's a lot of things, once you have some rich tracking data, you can start to do some really interesting kind of recurrent models with, I think there was a really interesting paper that came out a few years back called ghosting, where you basically can anticipate a given player's movement, given the you know the state of where everybody is and kind of what their goals are. And you can kind of learn that recursively with a bunch of tracking data. I think that's just one application. And there's some graph neural networks that are coming out that I think could be leveraged to pull a lot of this kind of interaction type information out of the player positions. 
And that seems really, really cool to me. But obviously, before you can get to that, you need this, you know, reliable, high frequency mm. tracking data. And so my other interest is on the opposite end of that spectrum, so the data acquisition side. And it's like, so tracking data is really cool. Can we get that tracking data from, you know, optical sensors, so video, you know, with the least amount of effort possible? And then what's the next primitive? What's after tracking data? Is it high frequency pose information? So we know where their arms and legs are at 25 hertz and figure out kind of insight from there. Can we start to interpret body language to some extent? And then can we, you know, what all can we pull out from just these pixels? Because we know coaches leverage those pixels extremely well. And so they have some wet neural network that, you know, passes those pixels in to give them some really great insights. How much of that can we codify and give the analysis into the spectrum just more primitives to work with and build analyses on? So I like that full stack of things that you have to think about. And those are just two off the top of my head. I don't know if they're particularly well articulated, but... You had me at graph neural network, so... (laughs) Yeah, oh, check those out. Those are awesome. Now, the thing with soccer, you just, can you build a predictor to know when those guys drop on the ground and, you know, roll around moaning? Are they actually injured or playing? You got to like, you know, fake or not algorithm. (laughs) Oh, you know, that's actually a very interesting problem. I think, you know, from a game theory perspective, right, it's clear that you don't get calls as often if you play through those types of, you know, contact. And so if you sell the contact, right, there is an advantage to be gained, right? So how do you fix that, right? Is there a rules change? The refs need to be a little bit more aggressive with their carding of, you know, flops or, yeah, I mean, the NFL, I mean, certainly not at the same level, but, you know, you kind of have that same no huddle, I have an injury now to kind of let the defense substitute kind of situations. And so, yeah, that, I f- actually find that fascinating, <laughs> to be honest, because there's definitely a lot of gamesmanship in that, as kind of frustrating as it makes the game to watch. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, we're going to bring you back on the show when you figure that out. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, uh, that'll be a while. Awesome. This has been a pleasure. I think what you guys are doing to huddle and what you're doing personally are just fascinating, and I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for coming on. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you for your time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you rate us on your favorite podcast app, that will help other people find us and check out the next episode in uh, your feed. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. SumoLogic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. SumoLogic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.